Arahanto Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahanto Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahanto Sama Sambodasa number of you have been asking, what's this bowing stuff? I know there's a number of us here that are very new. And of course, in some of our upbringing in the Western culture, this sense of bowing is very foreign and we should never bow to um, images, idols. And so just, I felt it's appropriate to uh, just very briefly explain about the bowing. And we haven't actually done a full bowel prostration. Well, actually, some of us have done a full bowel prostration. When that is done, there's actually five points that are making contact with the ground, the head, the two arms, and the two feet. And this is representative of five very important benefactors in our life that we are paying homage to. We're actually not necessarily paying homage to a wooden or bronze or, you know, this is a materiality. However, this is an incredible image, and we've been talking about the image, and we have the Buddha and the Buddha's mom here. <laughs> that is really amazing. And, you know, while the Buddha was enlightened, he actually traveled to, the stories go to a celestial realm, the Tattavimsaloka, the realm of the 33 celestial beings, and there he taught his mom the highest teachings of the Dharma called the Abhidharma. And upon hearing this, her and her fellow celestial beings attained full enlightenment. That's what you call a son, you know? <laughs> he goes up to the celestial realm, finds his mom, and turns her on to the Dharma, just like he did with his son and his father. Even though he had left home, he came back and gave them the royal heritage. But this five-point prostration is symbolic of very beautiful qualities. And the first that we pay homage to is our mother and father. Without them, we would not be here. We pay homage to our teachers, those that have brought us into the path of the heart. And we pay homage to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, as we talked about earlier with these refuges, the historical Buddha, if you will, and the Buddhas that have come before him and those that will come in the future, to the Dharma, to the teachings, to the Sangha, the noble community, and of course, on a more personal level, paying homage to the Buddha potentiality within all of us, the Dharma, the community, the Sangha. And so when we're bowing to one another, we're recognizing that potentiality. In the Hindu tradition, and probably many of you heard of it, this called Namaste. Have most people hear of that? Namaste. Well, I kept on hearing this Namaste, 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 and all of a sudden I thought there should be another word, and I call it Nashite. <laughs> Not only do we honor the divine within you, if you will, but honoring you know what within you. And this retreat has been a profound honoring of what's come up. <laughs> it's come up a lot. And in our groups, in the interviews, and in some personal interviews, so breathtaking, the heartfulness, the sharing of the deep pains of life and just very, very, um, I'm very touched, and I know Mary Grace and Marcy as well, touched with the sincerity and the heartfulness and the courage, the vulnerability, it's just incredible. I, I'd like to first talk a little bit more about the 32 parts of the body meditation. Since we've been working on it for the last uh, few days. And some of us have asked, how do we um, 
keep this practice going? How do we do this at home? And so I gave all of you in those handouts some information and I'd invite you if this practice uh, is something that you're inclined to do to continue working with it. And perhaps the simplest of methods is if you can to take 30 minutes and perhaps the first five minutes or so doing some mindful breathing practice just in a sense to help bring some calmness, some concentration, arriving, being present. And after a little bit of some mindful breathing is to shift perhaps to the grouping that you would like to work with. And spending maybe about five minutes or so with each of these parts. I will have eventually posted on my website these definitions and I've put my website out on the bulletin board and so you can download those. And just working with what particular body parts you feel so inclined to. And at the end of the, of, that takes up about 25 minutes and for the other last five minutes if we make it a 30 minute practice is to do some loving kindness and that recollection that these parts is what uh, is part of this body. This is the body, this vehicle that we live within in this pathway towards greater awakening so that we want to really bring the quality of loving kindness in as we work with these parts. But let us also work with these parts to help break our spell, the spell of our infatuation with the body, our enchantment with the body. Of course, with those enchantments and infatuations, we have so much misery about what our body looks like and what's happening to it and wanting it to be different. And so we can begin potentially to penetrate through that, begin to see the body as it really is, this changing organism made of solidity, liquidity, motion, temperature. Where is this self? I've had many um, interesting comments in some of the interviews about just discoveries about the body and Actually, there was a, a question, too, about how does the 32 parts of the body relate to, heal, uh, relate to healing? And so, actually, just even some of the comments are specific uh, indicators. Here's one from a person said that my first association with specific body liquids and solids were related to illness and death and violence. Who died of liver failure, or heart trouble, or a murder that I saw, and the blood pooling around the head? As a society, we mostly think of the exterior. And as we consider the inner parts and what they're really made of, they break down into organs and processes, like seeing the body in a new light. Another person said to me, I can't believe it. I just love my large intestines. I just love my large intestines. I love my large intestines. <laughs> there had been some trouble, some challenges with the body and this notion of getting in touch with these intestines and what they do. Another person said, I began to feel into my heart and all of a sudden I had an experience of getting in touch with my older brother who I just love so much and he's somewhat older than me and just some type of an anticipatory grieving came up of his death even though he's not critically ill or anything right now. This body is this storehouse of our learnings, our feelings, our thoughts, our experiences. As Martha Elliott will talk about. So as we go into the body, things begin to emerge. This is indeed the vehicle that we live within. Now, the student of mine um, talked about her experience working with sweat as she was going through menopause. And you know, not knowing about menopause myself, um, but I guess men have their own form. But 
it's very challenging, she was reporting. You just never know when it's going to come on, and you just start sweating all over the place. Your clothes get soaking wet, and then you start freezing. And there was a lot of aversion to this, naturally so. But through practicing sweat, 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 beginning to develop another relationship with sweat, seeing it as a bodily function. And somehow, in some way, beginning to develop a sense of reconciliation with the sweat, with the hot flash, willing to be with it, that this is the nature of the body. This body speaks to us. There may be a feeling of the heart ache, or the sweat, or this, or that. Maybe there's a moment of anger that arises, or sadness. And I consider these to be kind of like, you know, like in a car, if the brakes are going bad, there's a little light on the dashboard. Warning lights, they're called. They're really good things, because they tell us that something is going on much deeper in the system. And sometimes in our mindfulness practice, we have our own warning lights. I have an uncomfortable feeling. There's an anger. There's a sadness. These are kind of like warning lights. And then we begin to pay attention to these warning lights, begin to acknowledge, oh, here's this feeling here. And gradually, as we open into these spaces, we can begin to see perhaps where it's wired where it's going to, because when we see the brake light warning coming on the dashboard, the problem ain't at that spot. It's somewhere else, much deeper, located in the brake. It's in the same way with our practice of mindfulness, and at times it involves incredible investigation and inquiry, like we feel something, it's strong, it's a 9.7 on the Richter scale, and it's calling our attention. At times we need to pay attention to what's being called upon and beginning to acknowledge and feel into that space. Perhaps we'll discover something very important, a ruby, a gem. I speak of a ruby and gem. I'm talking about that the more in my own direct experience that I move into my own fear, into my own pain, not that I would like to sign up and do this, but it's here. As I venture in, I begin to see and understand more about what is fueling, what is underlying, what is causing. And of course, this understanding is what enables for me, and, I, and I've seen for so many others, to have a little bit more space and freedom. It's the understanding that sets us free. So we talk about in Vipassana meditation, it means extraordinary seeing. And Pali, V is extraordinary, pasana, the root is pasa, from seeing, and bring these together, it's extraordinary seeing, or perhaps we bring it together, we call it insight, insight meditation. Part of our practice is learning how to give space to what's there, and often our inclination towards what's uncomfortable is to push it away. And yet, of course, whatever we push away comes back. Jennifer Wellwood talks about in her poem, El Unconditional, whatever you flee from will pursue you. But then she says, whatever you welcome will transform you. Very wise, very powerful statement. Whatever you flee from will pursue you, and whatever you welcome may transform you. So we're learning in some ways in our practice to give space to what arises. And in this way, we can begin to discover immense jewels about ourselves. I like the idea of giving space. Like the sky gives so much space, even to the most horrendous of storms, category one through five. And because of the immensity and spaciousness of the sky, in time, these storms be begin to dissipate. The mechanism of its dissipation is the immensity of which the sky gives, allowing all things to run their course. And in the same way, with our 
qualities of mindfulness with non-judgment, non-striving, letting be, acknowledging what's present. It provides this spacious type of awareness to allow and observe the comings and goings of mind states, body states. Not easy what I'm talking about, of course, but a framework of how we can begin to work with what arises. So I got another um, note. I just love this note. This note, thank you. You know who you wrote it when I read it. It kind of just uh, formed everything I wanted to talk about tonight. And she said, if, uh, we're all, if all we are is a collection of body parts, how are we radiant? Like your poets say, what's the inside vessel? That is a bloody good question. <laughs> that is an amazing question. What is the vessel or the gem or the jewel or this notion of freedom? In the gratitude, um, Kuti, um, gratitude temple, I don't know what I will call this beautiful little structure down the road that if you haven't been in, please go. It's a homage to teachers that have been great influences and gifts to many of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. And I love this one from Kala Rinpoche, and it kind of speaks to this question, but this question can't be answered. What is the jewel? That's one we're going to have to find out for ourselves. But Kalu says, Kalu Rinpoche, great Tibetan yogi, he says, you live in an illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. And when you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. <laughs> I love it. So we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. For all we are is a collection of body parts. How are we radiant, like the poets say? In the 32 parts of the body, swinging back to it, We've been working with a certain formula to penetrate into the parts, and this is called the sevenfold skill in learning. We've been doing the verbal recitation and the mental recitation, and then knowing the color, the shape, the direction, the location, the delimitation, and boundaries. Well, Buddhism is just so organized with all its numbers. And the reason, if you're wondering why are there so many numbers, there's four this, there's eight that, there's five this, there's 32 this, there's this and that. And part of it was, as we mentioned earlier, that this uh, teaching was an oral tradition. And so the categorizing by numbers made it very possible to, uh, as reminders, there's one dharma, there's mind and body is two, and there's three characteristics of existence, and there's four, Four foundations of my I mean, it just goes on and on. These numbers are very useful aids for learning. So in the 32 parts of the body, there's the tenfold skill in learning. You just got the sevenfold. Well, there's another 10. <laughs> and this speaks to, as we work with this practice and it grows and develops, that we may discern at certain moments to go a little bit more our own and what it is that we want to do. So the first aspect is following the order of the body parts, which we have been doing. Head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, and so forth. And we've been trying to work with it not too quickly and not too slowly. Part of this developing of concentration, so I'm going through these numbers, and I won't necessarily say this is number one, number two, number three, but I'm going through them so you get a sense of this is a formula really on how to practice it. This is what this is about. So we're learning to, to follow the order of the parts, not going too quickly, not going too slowly, building our concentration that helps ward off distraction. We're staying with the concept, meaning staying with the body part. This next practice is very wonderful, and it's called successive leaving. And 
what that refers to is that, that as time goes on when we work with this practice, some particular body part may begin to become much more prominent and interesting. And you just have this compelling interest to want to go deeper. Earlier today, I was like so into my teeth. And something, I just got so curious about how they're uprooted so tightly into the gum and then like, and, and then the color white. And, and there was just something that, that just drew me into teeth and staying with teeth, teeth, teeth. So we might find as we do this practice that we get drawn into one particular body part much stronger than the other. And so as we grow and mature with this practice, we can begin to leave out those other parts that are not as shining bright and beginning to hone and build our intense concentration and awareness upon the object that is, if you will, burning bright. The example of teeth for me today. And I bet some of us here have certain organs that you've found some real, I love my intestines. I mean, and, and I'm sure that if I took a poll here, we would find that there might be some other people that just got some real interest in a particular part. So as the practice matures, we can potentially begin to hone in on one part. In this way, our practice deepens and we can begin to develop absorption. 32 parts of the body is one of these practices in Buddhist meditation that has a component of developing deep and profound insight into the nature of reality, if you will, but it also has the potentiality of developing into deep absorption, deep, deep concentration. So one of these practices that we can tend towards developing deep concentration, developing what they say in Pali, the jhanas, these different absorbed states where the mind is so still and at one with the object, object and subject perhaps even leave. And there's just this sense of serenity and calmness and tranquility. Sounds pretty nice, huh? However, um, there's some catches. Part of developing our awareness and concentration, I love how they describe this, the six coolnesses. I love that word, developing the six coolnesses. What are the coolnesses? When consciousness or awareness should be restrained as you're working with the object, it is restrained. When awareness should be exerted, then we exert attention. When it should be encouraged, we encourage it. When consciousness is, is when we begin to develop a sense of equanimity and balance with it, it is looked upon with equanimity. When that equanimity begins to develop, it's, it transitions from the state of absorption to really beginning to see this changing nature of body and mind. It begins to hone its attention on deliverance, on freedom. The sixth coolness is one delights in immense freedom, Nibbana. The last aspect of this practice is the balancing of, of enlightenment factors. Beautiful how this map in the Dharma is so incredible. This map of balancing enlightenment factors of mindfulness, investigation, effort, rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. These begin to become very balanced. So we have some practice to do with the 32 parts. And I just wanted to introduce a little bit of some of the map here. I know there's a lot here, and we could probably, I could probably have about 20 different Dharma talks just on this for the next 20 days, just to unpack it even more. But I want to just introduce this to you and to, to touch upon it. But we touch upon it, you know, we're hearing about freedom and this and that. Sounds good. But what are we, why are we here? Why did we come here? Bhante Gunaratana, he wrote a great book. It's called Mindfulness in Plain English. And if there is a down-to-earth, no BS book on mindfulness, that is it. It is just an amazing book. 
But he talks about that uh, to be a meditator, it takes gumption. And he, he really likes that word, gumption. And I kind of like it. It takes gumption because you know, we're sitting here with a lot of stuff. We've got to have some gumption to sit here. <laughs> that sound of it is great, gumption. <laughs> to sit with the unpleasantness. Why, you know, he says, he says wow, well, I mean, we could be home watching television. <laughs> or going out for a walk or having a nice pizza or a movie. Or, I mean, why do this? And, you know, we've got Marcy running a pain clinic here. And, 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 you know, it's like amazing. Why do this? Bhante Gunaratana says it simply in four words. Simply because you're human. Why do this? Because we're human. And within this humanness, we got stuff to deal with. It's a very powerful um, teaching of the Buddha called the Five Remembrances, and it says, I'm of the nature to grow old, and I cannot escape from growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health, and I cannot escape from having ill health. I am of the nature to die, and I cannot escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. I cannot escape from being separated from them. My deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. This life, as wonderful as it is, and I remember one time <laughs> when I was a monk in Burma and I was out in this forest and this cut, and this was back before that, I was kind of like in my hippie days, and I was just sitting there and just breathing in and out, and I had this fantasy, like, God, if I could just have a big TV in here and a refrigerator full of beer and like pounds and pounds of marijuana, I would just be set forever. <laughs> And I watched that thought come, and I watched it go. The longing, uh -huh. the longing for it to be different, to better. Mm -hmm. My son was telling me last week or so, um, he, 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 I really am proud of him because he called me about midnight and said, Dad, I, I want to let you know he's 16, I've been drinking. And uh, I appreciated so much that he could call me and tell me, and I didn't respond with any anger, but just to um, want to know whether he's safe, does he need a ride, and to be careful. And um, the next day, um, we were talking, and, and I was asking him about what he had done. And so he had the beer, he had the Bacardi rum, he had like about three or four other things. And I said, did you throw up? He goes, yeah, I threw up last night and I threw up this morning. Oh. And, and, and then I was just kind of asking more about his experience. And I, and I said, and, you know, it's so interesting how you, like, you get all these things and you have all this, and then what? And, and when I asked him, then what? Like, I could just see in his eyes, like everything kind of froze and stopped. And then what? So you have your great whatever it is. And now you're drunk. Now what? And I think like he saw in that moment, just for a moment, oh, I'm still with me. I'm still with me. It still didn't go away. I hope that he, someday I hope I'll be able to ask him. Like, did, I could see in his eye, I think that he got it for a moment. There was this moment where things froze. At times, life is not where it is that we would like it to go. And I won't even say that, it, I, I mean, I'll just say it in a very matter-of-fact way, this is kind of inherent to life. We may like it, we may not like it. It's the way that it is. These powerful five remembrances that we cannot escape from illness, we cannot escape from death, we cannot escape from aging. We just, that's part of, simple, you're a human. So perhaps it's because you're a human that you showed up here. 
perhaps there's been a certain amount of suffering that you've begun to acknowledge or dissatisfactoriness or things just aren't going the way they want to be going that somehow hit you over the head like I was sharing the other night about that giant redwood tree that hit me over the head and said, you know, you better start looking inside. And I trust that for every one of us here that perhaps uh, we've been also clobbered by that redwood tree. And it's forced us in some way to want to look inside. The story of the Buddha is a very interesting story because in many ways, actually I'll take that back, in all ways, he was like you and me. He was a human being. His name was Siddhartha Gautama before he was a Buddha. Maybe none of us here grew up in a palace. Maybe there was some differences. And of course, he became the Buddha and we are Buddha potentials. But, you know, he had, he grew up in a very rich home and was trained in all of these educations and arts and sciences, and he had everything. He had an iPod, or the new <laughs> iMac, he had the latest Wi-Fi, or whatever that thing is called, the Wii, all these things of those times, everything. And he lived his life, and he met a beautiful woman, married her, Yasodhara. And in his 29th year, I don't know if he got a little itchy or curious, but he somehow had some sense of wanting to go outside of his palace. And somehow his father had been warned that when after uh, Siddhartha was born, it was customary of those days to bring in some wise men, and they would look at the baby and say, oh, this is, and two of them said, this is going to be a wise, great, great king, and one of them said, no, he's going to become a Buddha. And the king said, I don't want no one becoming some religious, like some, you know, wandering ascetic. I'm going to protect him, and I'm going to keep him in a palace, and I want to become a great king like myself. And so he was in a very protected environment, but again, at the age of 29, Something happened where he decided to go outside of the palace with his charioteersman, Chana. And they went on a series of excursions and saw what sometimes we will call the four heavenly messengers. The first messenger was that he saw someone that was very old. And Siddhartha had actually never seen anyone that old and bent, and asked Chana, who's this? And Chana said, this is a, an old person. If you live long enough, you'll get old. And Siddhartha said, you, you, feel, you mean this would happen to me? To, to everyone I know? And Chana says, yeah, no one can escape from aging. The other excursion, he came across someone that was really, really ill, extremely ill, couldn't even move, agonizing, pain, diarrhea, vomiting. person was near dying, and Siddhartha questioned about this person. He said, yeah, this is a person that's ill. None of us can escape from these types of illnesses. Well, up to that point, Siddhartha had, had everything, and like this was like a shook him. The third going out, he came across a corpse, a dead body. He asked, China, what is this? This body's not moving, not breathing. China said, this is a person that has died. He asked, is this going to happen to me, to others? He goes, yeah. China said, no one can escape death. And Siddhartha was totally devastated. And sometimes I've thought about this story. I love this story. But I thought, this is not a real story. This is some type of a myth. It couldn't be true. How could you not know about this? But then I thought to myself, how long have I lived in a dream? 
How long have I lived in a dream thinking that it's always going to be sunny or I'm going to live forever? There's actually a Hindu proverb that says everyone thinks everyone else is going to die and not me. And Siddhartha Gautama, he got woken up. And perhaps we are waking up to this. What is this life? In Pali, there's a very beautiful word that describes the state of consciousness. It's called samweka. And samweka means when you have the realization that you have no doubt now whatsoever that you are going to die, that it sets upon a spiritual sense of inner urgency for deliverance that there's almost nothing that can stop you now. And Siddhartha was on fire with this samweka type of consciousness. Even though he had all that money could buy, he realized this was wonderful and not enough and that he needed to go and find out what was the truth of life. The fourth heavenly messenger came along in the guise of a, a, a wandering holy person. Siddhartha saw in town this person walking by with kind of rag robes and a shaved head, but this person was very different than any other person he had ever seen in his entire life. This person had a serene countenance, seemed calm. Each step was easy and peaceful. And Siddhartha inquired, who's this? He goes, oh, this is a person that's dedicating their life to the inner world, to understanding life. And Siddhartha knew at that moment, this is what I need to do. So Siddhartha went back to the palace and he planned his leaving. And as he was getting ready to leave, he gave away all of his royal garments to his uh, friend and charioteersman, Chana. Gave away everything. Shaved his head. Put on the robes of a mendicant. And as he was getting ready to leave, his father came to him and saw what was going on and said, son, don't leave. And he looked at his dad with such tenderness and said, Dad, I, I have to leave. I have to, I, I, you know, and he had, the father knew what Siddhartha had realized about aging and death and illness. And so the father, King Sudana, was begging him, please don't leave, please don't leave. I can offer you anything. And Siddhartha said, all right, then I want you to offer me three things. Ah, a glimmer of hope. A great king has everything. And Siddhartha said, prevent me from getting old. Prevent me from getting sick. Prevent me from dying. King sunk his head in defeat, but still pleaded with him, please, anything else. And Siddhartha said, promise me two things, a glimmer of hope. Prevent me from getting sick. Prevent me from dying. King Siddhartha's head again just dropped in such deep sadness. He loved his son. In one last grasping to hold on, son, one thing, just one thing. Surely I can grant you one thing. And Siddhartha, perhaps even with tears in his eyes, said, prevent me from dying. And at that moment, King Sudana knew that he couldn't hold back his son. And his son, they say, went away that night in the midst of his wife in labor, giving birth to a son. At that time, of course, Siddhartha knew that the son was going to be very well cared for with a palace and a family, though we might think of, like, you know, this is a pretty outrageous thing to do. Pretty outrageous thing to do. And yet, his samweka, his consciousness, his sense of urgency for understanding the meaning of life was so strong, he had to go.
there's actually a very beautiful uh, story of a, of a very dear friend of mine who's a monk in Burma, and he was, his name is Uzodaka, Seattle Uzodaka. He's a very renowned and loved monk, teacher. And he was born in Burma to a Muslim family. They were not Buddhists. And he got his degree in electrical engineering from the University of Rangoon and embarked upon his career, but he was a very curious fellow about life, about science, about everything. He's really curious, really curious person. I love Uzodaka. He's just so curious about things. And somehow he got very curious about Buddhism. And he began studying the psychological aspects in Buddhism and the mind culture and development. And he just realized he wanted to become a monk. And he had two daughters. His wife was a Buddhist from a Buddhist family. And the story goes that he approached his wife with his two young children and shared what he wanted to do, his aspiration. This is a different culture, even though it's in our times, these current times. And she said to him, I will do everything possible to support you to become a monk. It will be my greatest honor to support you. And they came from a well-to-do family, and the family took on raising the children. Kind of an amazing story. And what's very interesting about the story is that Uzodaka, uh, through many years of practice, and he's a writer and a poet, and he's written a number of books that are addressed towards the Burmese youth. He's kind of like the Herman Hesse of Burma. And he's written these most amazing, inspiring books to the youth of Burma, giving them hope in a, in a country that has so much profound madness and torture and despair and he is so loved. And his daughter ended up becoming the publisher for his books, earning a livelihood, buying a very large compound and bringing her father into the compound in his own house where he has a monastery and the daughter lives next door to him. <laughs> Reminds me of the story of when the Buddha, after his awakening, came back. So you think, okay, the guy left his son and his wife. But you know, he did indeed come back. As I mentioned, he came back to his mother traveling to the world of the celestial 33. I mentioned that earlier, right? I'm having a little mind melt, okay. And he came back to his father and to his wife and to his son Rahula. And he shared with them what he had learned. And they too tasted freedom. Very beautiful, this sense of coming back. When the Buddha was awakened, he gave a lion's roar, and he said that, through many of birth I've wandered in samsara. Samsara is the world of birth, old age, disease, and death. Seeking not and finding, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again, O householder, house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All thy rafters are broken, thy ridge pole is shattered, my mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of ignorance and craving. So what did the Buddha discover underneath the Bodhi tree? So it said after seven long years, he practiced with all these different masters. He learned everything that any master could teach him. He was a very great student. And, he would, and finally, the master would say to him, you know, um, you've learned all that I know, and now you can teach. And it wasn't enough. So then he practiced severe ascetic practices, self-mortification, till eventually he would eat one grain of rice a day, and when he touched his belly, he'd feel his backbone. And near exhaustion, near almost coming to death, he realized the futility of self-mortification and realized that, you know, I need to eat some food. And he met along the way this beautiful maiden named Sujata who offered him some gruel. And this gruel restored his strength and his vitality. And he decided there was a beautiful tree nearby that he would just go sit underneath this tree, which became known as the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening. And he determined to just sit there. 
There's no other place to go. Nothing else to do. I'm going to stay here. I've learned all that I can learn from others. I've got to stay here and figure it out for myself. And it said as he was sitting there and reflecting about this that he recalled the time when he was a boy and he remembered um, being out by some farmer's field and it was one of these beautiful days leaning up against a tree and the sun was just right, the wind was just right, the temperature was just right. It was so incredibly beautiful. And as you looked out into the field, like it was just beautiful too, but then you also saw the the cows or the oxes with the plows breaking the earth open. And it was one of those moments where like he could almost hear as the plows were digging into the ground, the sound of worms and other creatures feeling their pain. There was a moment where all of a sudden like he just felt this pain, this pain of life. And that somehow moved him with such a sense of compassion and he also recalled, as he was sitting under that tree, that he called that he just naturally just started being aware of his breath coming in and his breath coming out and began to quiet himself with that memory of the plow and the creatures being hurt and then him just doing some breathing just to be settled. And he began to just become mindful of the breath in and the mindful of the breath out. He stayed with this practice throughout the evening into the night. And there was many temptations that came trying to, you know, so many you know, we're sitting here, we're thinking, you know, maybe we should go out there, maybe it'll be better there. Maybe there's a nice movie on. Who knows? Lots of temptations. There's stories about the temptations. I won't necessarily go into it right now, but he was determined, I'm going to stay here. And it said in that uh, early morning hours that he discovered something about life. And he thus gave that uh, deliberation that I was talking about through many of birth. But what he discovered was called the Four Noble Truths, again, another number. And the first noble truth is something that we've been sitting with for the last few days. It's perhaps what brought us to this retreat. It's this truth of, at times, uh, we experience dissatisfactoriness. We hardly can be in one position before we got to turn to another position. Constantly in the sense of moving towards something, pushing away from what's there. So he discovered that life indeed does have suffering or dissatisfactoriness. So this exists, and it's like, finally, somebody's like named it. Like, oh, there's... An elephant, I mean, I don't want to pick on the elephants. I love the elephants. But, you know, the expression, like, you name the white elephant in the room. And so there's a sense of, like, you kind of named it. And, and actually, I find in my MBSR classes, when we go around the circle and people begin to share what brought them there, gut anxiety, I'm dealing with cancer, I have this, I have that, there's something going, I'm depressed. It's, there's almost like some relief that sometimes happens in the class because it's such a recognition of, like, my, I'm not alone. We have, we, this is our condition, our human condition. And Buddha was acknowledging this human condition. Sometimes Buddhism gets a real downer. Oh, it's all about suffering. It's just the opposite. But there's, there's a naming of it. And somehow the naming of it is a validation. And that validation is very important. So that's the noble truth, the first noble truth. And the second noble truth is this insight into its causes. The foundation of this is unawareness, ignorance, that very much uh, drives this sense of craving and aversion. And you notice in our lives how much we're going after things or pushing away things. We want this, but we don't want that. And that th this sense of living in the world of grasping and aversion that's fueled by unawareness. It's like we're doing this all the time. I know that I've done this for years. You know, going towards what I want and pushing away what I don't want. Is there another way to live? Is there something else other than just this? And the Buddha discovered that there perhaps there is something else. 
not that you can't enjoy the strawberry. It's a beautiful quote from Achan Cha, Jack Cornfield's teacher. One day he was drinking a cup of tea, and he was talking about the tea glass cup. It was a beautiful cup. But he was saying, he's laughing, he goes, I already know it's broken. And he's drinking and enjoying his tea. That type of space of mind is one that's not in a sense of grasping. It's already broken. But here I am, I'm also able to enjoy my tea. The great third Zen patriarch says, the great way is not difficult for those that have no preferences. <laughs> what a great guy, huh? Just seek cherishing opinions and you'll know all, everything about the truth, he says, too. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. We got a lot of preferences. I got a lot of preferences. So in these causes, Achan Sumedho, he describes like three different causes of suffering. There's the causes for our endless wanting of things. And of course, it's opposite, the endless aversion of things. And then there's this thing about becoming. I want to be this. I want to be that. I want to be loved. I want to be seen. How much of the time have we left ourselves for another? I love that part in the poem, Love After Love, by Derek Walcott, where it says, like, all your life whom you've ignored for another. So there's times we have, because we're ignoring ourselves, we're wanting to be someone else. And the pain of wanting to be seen, to be understood, to be recognized, to be acknowledged is a big pain. I know that in my life, wanting to be seen, to accept it. Actually, I'm learning from the Enneagram people. Oh, I'm a number nine. Oh, that explains everything. <laughs> what number are you? But in any event, this type of craving to become someone can give us a lot of pain because it's negating ourselves. They talk about in Buddhist psychology, and one of the things that I like about Buddhism is that it is so psychologically oriented. It's really a science of the mind. Even when we look at these different stages of enlightenment that might appear to be very mystical sounding, each of these stages is actually dependent upon specific psychological aspects that are eradicated. But briefly speaking, as we reduce them down to three, it is said that these three are greed, hatred, and ignorance. And these are manifested in what we see, smell, taste, hear, feel, and mind states. Very wonderful, connected to our sense organs and mind states, kind of complete. And it's said about greed that there's no fire hotter than greed. And we know it when we're on fire. I know it. And there's no ice more colder than hatred. We know that too. And there's no fog as thick as ignorance or delusion when we can't see clearly. Third Noble Truth speaks about the cessation of suffering, which is the cessation of this wanting, this grasping, the cessation of this not wanting. Not easy to do. How do we do this? And if by not wanting, am I just going to be kind of like some pet rock sitting somewhere? Like, what about pizza? <laughs> What about the concert? What about the beautiful sunset? Will I just be kind of sitting? So I kind of look at it this way, that what you lose is all those parts of yourself that you don't like anyways. You get to have the rest. You get to lose your greed, hatred, and ignorance. And what you get is non-greed, non-hatred, non-ignorance. You have freedom, you have peace. There's a fear. Will I just not enjoy my life? So the fear of losing the sense of ego identity is very, very scary. It's all we know, this construction that we have developed. And the funny story is at times is who are we without our story? And the 32 parts of the body is beginning to penetrate more deeply into, like, you know, am I in my gallbladder? I mean, thank goodness the gallbladder is there, and it's, you know, 
putting out bile and, and you know, helping to emulsify the fats going into the small intestines. This is good stuff. And without this happening, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation tonight. You know, all these things going on, we wouldn't be able to talk. So it's very interesting how we're, we can use this vehicle and understand it deeply and begin to experience potentially deeper levels of understanding that may set us a bit freer. So how do we go about doing it? And that brings us to the fourth noble truth, which in some ways might really be, should be the third noble truth. It's the pathway that leads to the end of suffering. And simply speaking, the Buddha talked about, again in Numbers, the Eightfold Noble Path. I trust many of you have heard of the Eightfold Noble Path, and it can actually be divided into three areas. First is living a virtuous life. This is, a, Buddha was very practical. Living a virtuous life, living with integrity, morality, though we don't like that word in America, morality. Oh, gosh. But we, we started these precepts earlier. You know, I love the commandments too, if you will, but they're training rules that we train to take. And the, the Buddha wasn't blind, like, you know, you know, don't kill because it's bad. Don't kill because when you kill and you get the experience of what it feels like to kill, you're living with the feeling of killing, and that is suffering mind. You steal, then you live with the feeling that you're a thief, and you live with a suffering mind. And don't believe me, but I'm not suggesting that you do it to find out either, but think about it anyways. You know? so these ethical training rules of virtue are helping to support our foundation. Mary Grace was talking about like the foundation is the sense of generosity, virtue, concentration, and wisdom each are foundations supporting the other. So this first foundation of virtue manifests in very specific ways. One is talked about right speech. Let our speech be true. Let us not idle and gossip or backbite. Sometimes in the suttas they talk about, don't let it be like animal talk. Well, that's really not very accurate because I've never heard of any animal slandering. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Talk that is not beneficial, it's not helpful. So we bring our awareness to our speech. This is a very important aspect of the, one of the steps, wise speech. There's wise livelihood. What type of work are we doing? Are we working in ammunition factories, making poisons, doing things that are actually very harmful for society, for ourselves, or any type of a livelihood, whether it's being prostitution, things that are creating some type of suffering. We want to address our livelihood. How can I align with my livelihood that it is a wise livelihood? And, and when I say wise, we don't have to you know, be a teacher. We can, we can be working at Kmart or Safeway or the post office, and we're dealing with people with integrity and with kindness. We're working with our associates with kindness and sincerity. Doesn't matter. I mean, the livelihood is important in ways of, that are causing more pain and harm, but ways that are skillful. There's also, of course, wise action. What we do, the actions that we take in our lives. This builds upon the mind. As we set this virtue in place, we can begin to develop wise effort towards our meditation practice. We can begin to develop concentration. We begin to bring our right mindfulness, our wise mindfulness to the practice. This last grouping is called wisdom, bringing our right thoughts, our right understandings to what's happening. This is what fuel this discovery of the causes of our own suffering and our own pain and its potential alleviament from that. So these eight steps, if you will, or eight integrated steps are so important. How do we work with ending our suffering? We're working with cultivating our right speech, 
our right livelihood, our right action, or we could say rather than right, our wise speech, our wise livelihood, our wise action, our wise effort, our wise mindfulness, our wise concentration, our wise thought, our wise understanding. I have so much more to say, but we're getting towards the end. So, another time I um, will have to continue our talk. But that is something that I just want to offer a couple of little readings. This is a, more of a contemporary um, gesture of developing this awareness of, uh, of death. This is from Rick Fields. It's called Varanasi. It says, passing by the silver and gold sari covered corpse, Dawa, she's a hip 20-year-old Dharamsarala girl, she says, Tibetans say, when you see the dead, it's good luck. Why is that? Makes people pray. Makes people pray. Makes people begin to wake up. Something's going on here. wanted to speak somewhat about death, but I won't. I think I'm going to just end with a, a song given to me by my friend uh, Celeste here. And this will go well with the body parts. It's called the hearse song. You might have sung it when you were a kid. Did you ever think when a hearse goes by that you might be the next to die? They wrap you up in a bloody sheet and throw you in about six feet. You're okay for about a week unless your casket springs a leak. The worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms play pinochle on your snout. Your liver turns lusty green, your guts squirt out like shaving cream. You wrap it up in a piece of bread and that's what you eat when you're dead. I thought that was a very fitting song for the 32 parts. So I'm going to end and officially end now <laughs> with one more reading. And this, this comes way back to that question from the jewel. I promise it'll be over. I was going <laughs> to read the jewel, but I don't have her. No but anyways, this is called I Have Learned So Much. And I think the jewel was caused by a poem that I read earlier by Hafiz, and so I'm going to end with a Hafiz. It's called I've Learned So Much. I have learned so much that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even a pure soul. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely, it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely, it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept, every image my mind and heart has ever known. an announcement to make and sorry to say it's not popcorn but there was a request earlier some of you might be horrified to hear this and some very happy there was actually a very long version of how you chant the 32 parts of the body meditation it takes about 45 minutes and I am all game for it and um, 
what we're going to do is have a walking meditation now, and at 9 o'clock we'll have a short sitting for about 15 minutes. And then those that would like to partake for some of it, none of it, or all of it are welcome to stay, but we probably will be chanting for about 45 minutes straight. And there is no oxygen tanks here, so we'll go easy on it. But there's a very, there's the longer version of doing this practice that we do from sometimes, and you're welcome to join us. It could just be Laura and I, who knows? And uh, anyways, um, thank you. And this retreat is by no means over. And the punchline is that even when this retreat is over, it's still not over because our life is the retreat. But may we continue with our walking practice and being mindful, and see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.